Welcome back to the Faith Explained on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio mobile app. I'm your host, Kale Clark, and we're starting a brand new series today. And it's one that I've always wanted to do, but I kind of enter into this venture with, with much trepidation. It's St. Paul's letter to the Romans. Yeah, we're going to try to climb Mount Everest together when it comes to the New Testament books. If you ask a lot of biblical scholars and just general fans of the Bible, if you were stranded on a desert island, what biblical book would you take with you? A very, very popular choice would be St. Paul's letter to the Romans. And really, some people have called it the gospel according to to Paul. What's this letter all about? Now, this is the first letter that's listed in your New Testament after the four Gospels and, of course, the Acts of the Apostles, well, History of the Early Church by St. Luke. Then we have St. Paul's letter to the Romans, and it has had a seismic impact on the world, on the church throughout history. And in fact, even the Protestant revolutionaries used Romans to kind of back up their new doctrines like Dr. Luther and his salvation by faith alone doctrine. And, and, and we'll get into all that and how Romans was, was used in a lot of these theological battles throughout the years. But it's important for us to understand what it means for all people. This is a, a book that can really impact every single person on planet Earth because it really talks about why we need a Savior, what the gospel is all about, why it's good news, because there's a lot of bad news. And if you've read Romans, uh, whether in the liturgy, you've heard it read as part of the readings, or uh, just in your own personal study, you know that it really lays out a very, very desperate case for humanity without God in the beginning. And so I'm going to try to, in this episode, uh, set the table before us, if you will, before we can sit down and enjoy the meal and kind of feast on St. Paul's letter to the Romans. I'm going to talk about some of the major concepts, uh, who wrote it. It was Paul, of course. That's really not disputed. Why he was writing to Rome, what some of the, the big themes are here, and then we'll dive into the text itself. You know, one of the, one of the great experiences that I had in, in terms of ministry and sharing the faith with people uh, took place when I was in, involved with giving retreats, talks, and seminars to a Catholic group, a Catholic uh, chaplaincy group uh, at a university in the Toronto area. And it was, uh, it was really interesting because whenever I walked into the, the student union building, as it were, and the Catholic chaplaincy kind of met at the end of a very, very long hallway, and they had a little chapel there, and, and the students were great. They were just so phenomenal. And I find that the university years are very, very formative in most people's lives, uh, either for or against the faith. Sometimes when kids are exposed to the marketplace of ideas, the marketplace of worldviews that are out there in the world, it can be overwhelming. If they're not really well-grounded in their Catholic faith, it can be devastating. And that's true of adults, too, when, when we go out into the world of work and we interact with people from different faiths, different backgrounds. It, it can really be a test. It can really be a stressor. It's, it's one thing to know uh, what the Catholic Church teaches about different topics, but it's another thing when you're actually dealing with a person who is actually living that way against what the Catholic Church teaches. How do you relate to this individual? And sometimes our well-formed arguments go out the window when we're talking to an actual person. 
But I remember at the end of this long hallway in the student center at the university, there were all these different student religious groups. Uh, there was an Islamic student union. There was uh, a Jewish group. There was uh, there were various Christian groups, various Protestant Christian groups, evangelical groups. There were animists. There were Wiccans. There were all kinds of different organizations vying for um, the mind share, if you will, of, of the students and trying to convince them that what they really should do is join this group. And I remember being uh, struck by the fact that at the very end of the hallway, there was the Catholic chaplaincy. And in the heart of that little room, there was a tabernacle. Jesus Christ himself was there, body, blood, soul, and divinity. And he is the answer. He is the answer uh, to the questions that people have and to the longings of the human heart as well. And I think that uh, we, we Catholic Christians really have to be certain about what we believe and why we believe it. What is our worldview? What, what's the, the glasses that we put on through which we view the world? And, and they have to be well-formed in the faith. Uh, they can't be foggy. Uh, they can't be all scratched up. Uh, they've got to be calibrated. They've got to be uh, sort of doctored to our particular eyes so that we can see. That's really what God does for us. And, and, and that's really what the letter to the Romans really is. It's, it's a worldview. It's a way to see the world. And it's the correct way to see the world because the person who wrote it isn't so much the Apostle Paul. It's, of course, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the principal author of all scripture. The human authors, like St. Paul, are the instrumental authors. God used Paul to get his message across. Using Paul's experiences, his vast knowledge, his incredible intellect, his penetrating mind, which was as brilliant and as sharp as a diamond, Using all of Paul's gifts, he was able to get this incredible message to not only the Romans in the first century, but to you and I as well. And so really, we've got to, we've got to really think. This is, a, again, a big challenge, and I, I, I kind of gulp and, and, and think, man, I don't know if I'm up for this. And maybe, maybe you aren't either. Maybe this is what you think. But this is for you and me. We really need this message. We really need to read Romans. Uh, don't say, this is too difficult. There, there is some stuff in it that's maybe a little confusing, but what we'll do is we'll break it down and we'll make it simple. We'll, we'll take what's hard and we'll make it easy. We'll try to make it understandable at least, because really what St. Paul's letter to the Romans does at the end of the day is say, and really God is saying to us, let my people think let my people think. We've got to think through this faith, but it's not just about what to believe. It's about how it can impact our very lives as well. So what really is this? It's a, it's a letter written by St. Paul, and it, and it is a letter. Let's, let's, not, let's not sort of sugarcoat that. It is a letter. It's not a textbook. A lot of people think that when St. Paul wrote his letter to the Romans. He wanted to write the, the first great book of Catholic theology. And it, it's not a systematic theology textbook. It, it really isn't. It's not the kind of thing that you would pick up uh, if you're studying in a seminary or uh, doing a master's degree program. It, it is a letter. And just like in Paul's other letters, he wrote it for a purpose. Now, sometimes he's trying to put out a fire. Sometimes he's trying to deal with issues in the church. When we did our series on 1 Corinthians, Saints and Sin City, that was so 
very obvious. There are all kinds of issues, problems, immorality, even among the members of the church. And Paul had to, to really set them straight. And so it's not so much about that. There are some issues that in the Roman church for sure, but, but really what he wants to do is sit back and say, this is why the Catholic Christian worldview is correct. This is why you should believe it. By the way, when I say Paul wrote it, um, I say that with a little bit of a wink um, because he 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 kind of more he didn't actually write it. There's a, there's another guy who wrote it and actually mentions him in the letter. His name is Tertius, and you can see this at the very very end of the letter in chapter 16. Paul kind of greets a whole bunch of different people, and the guy who is actually Paul's scribe or Paul's secretary actually kind of throws himself into this. This is really kind of funny in a certain sense, but it was, it was a common practice of the time. In uh, chapter 16, verse 22, it says, I, Tertius, the writer of this letter, greet you in the Lord. So he kind of throws himself in there, and he was basically taking the letter for Paul. Paul's speaking, maybe he's kind of laid back on a hammock, and he's just kind of holding court. Uh, you know, he's got a cigar, maybe. No, he's not doing that, but but no doubt it's, it is definitely Paul speaking here. Tertius is just writing it down. And he's telling us exactly what's going on, where he is at the time. Where's Paul writing this from? Where's the letter uh, to the Romans? It was written to Rome, but where is he when he's kind of composing this with uh, Tertius? Well, he's probably in Corinth. He, he mentions a, a place called Centuria in uh, chapter 16, verse 1. Centria was actually very, very close to Corinth. It was kind of the big seaport town next to the city of Corinth. And he's kind of got some breathing room here, St. Paul, if you will. <sighs> Paul had these very famous three missionary journeys. And he's, he's gotten a whole bunch of churches going. And you can read about this in Acts chapter th uh, 13 of the Acts of the Apostles all the way through chapter 20. Uh, he's been to Galatia, uh, Pisidian Antioch, Lystra, Iconium, Derbe. He's been to Ephesus in Asia, the Roman province of Asia, uh, Ephesus, Macedonia. He went to Philippi, Thessalonic, Thessalonica, where he writes the letters to the Thessalonians. He goes to Corinth, which is in Achaia, that province of the Roman Empire. He's been all over the place. And he wants to go somewhere else. He's got a new horizon in view. You're listening to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio. I'm your host, Cale Clark. Where does Paul want to go next? He wants to go to Spain. And, and this is really his great dream. Does he ever make it to Spain? We'll, we'll talk about that as we go along. But you can see this in chapter 15 of the letter to the Romans. He's like, I need to go there. It's a new horizon. It's a new sort of field of souls in Spain. And I really want to go there. And one thing about St. Paul is, he never, never, never wanted to stay in his comfort zone. He always was pushing forward. One of the great type A personalities of all time. That was part of how God used his personality to, to turn him into the greatest missionary of all time. But I think for us too, we sometimes can get in a rut and we can kind of just go with the familiar things, the familiar places, the familiar elements to our faith. But God wants us to push forward, sometimes into new horizons, new apostolic horizons, new people that he wants us to meet, that he wants to save. And so for Paul, he has decided, and I'm sure he prayed about this a lot, that Spain is the place for him. But 
he's got a pit stop to make before he goes there. He wants to go back to the holy city of Jerusalem. Why? He's been taking up this big collection for the church in Jerusalem. And this is a big theme in a lot of his letters. And you can read about this as well in chapter 15 of his letter to the Romans. He wants to, to really do this almost as a sign of unity between Jews and Gentiles in the one church of Jesus Christ. How God brings Jew and Gentile into one body. He breaks down the wall of division. He talks about this in his letter to the Ephesians. And so he wants to do this on his way to Spain. But before he goes to Spain, he wants to stop off in Rome and see these Roman Catholic Christians. This is one of the few letters of St. Paul where he's actually writing to a church before he's ever been there before. He's never met these people. They obviously have heard of him. His reputation precedes him. But he wants to make sure that he, he eventually gets there. So all in all, when he put it, put it together, when did he write this and from where? He probably wrote it in the city of Corinth in that area as part of his third missionary journey. And you can read about that in Acts chapter 20, probably in the year AD 57 in the first century. Think of Heinz 57, uh, give or take. We, we don't exactly know for sure what year it was, but it was definitely in the late 50s, I would say, uh, AD. So he's been going for a while. Paul has been for a quarter century now since his conversion, the famous Damascus Road encounter with Jesus. He's been going straight out, flat out, for about 25 years, preaching, teaching, God's done miracles through him. And he, he's a seasoned veteran now, for sure. And this is kind of a, a little space for him to kind of just sit back for a few days, reflect. What have I learned? What have I done? What have I, what have I shown the world? It's really a, a good chance for him to, to collect his thoughts together and write this letter to the Romans. And again, it's not so much about all the issues and problems and, and, and arguments that he had with people and, and false teachers and everything that he de deals with in his, in his other letters. He, he, this is for the first time he, he's had a chance to really sit back and think. It's much more of a, a teaching letter, a teaching document than some of the other letters. And again, there is no how to do church manual in, in the New Testament. You're listening to The Faith Explained. I'm Cale Clark on Relevant Radio. There is no how to do church manual in the New Testament. All of the letters in the New Testament are what we would call of an occasional nature. Paul is writing for a reason, to put out a fire, to deal with the problem, to correct a misunderstanding, to set somebody straight. These guys are already operational in the faith. The Mass is being celebrated. They have been catechized already. They know about sacred tradition. Paul doesn't even realize consciously that he's writing something that will be considered sacred scripture. When he's writing his letters, he's just trying to give great information here. He doesn't think it's necessarily going to be part of the Bible. But the Holy Spirit had other plans. So even, even Romans is not, like I said before, it's not a comprehensive manual on theology, but there is a lot of theology in it for sure. So it's written by Paul. Yeah, he uses scribe Tertius, but it's written to Rome and all roads lead to Rome. What, what do we know about the early members of the church in Rome? Well, it's interesting because the Acts of the Apostles, which says so much about how the early church got going and 
all the miracles wrought through the apostles, stuff that was going on in Jerusalem, the first church council of Jerusalem in 49 AD talks about that. But it doesn't talk about the founding of the church at Rome. Now, I will say this, though. If you look at the Acts of the Apostles, especially chapter 2, that's the whole Pentecost chapter when the Holy Spirit is poured out for all to see and the apostles are preaching. There are, of course, Jews from all over the world that were in the holy city of Jerusalem for the feast, and they hear the gospel proclaimed in their own language. There were Roman Jews that were there in Pentecost that day. We know that 3,000 people came into the church that day as well. You can see this in Acts chapter 2, verse 41. So guess what they did? They went back to Rome with their newfound knowledge that Jesus is the Messiah. Hey, the Messiah has come in his name is Jesus. This is really, really good news. So when the church got going in Rome, it was really in the synagogue. It was really Jewish members of the synagogue who came back and said, guess what? Have I got news for you? You might say, hang on, Kale. I thought that the church in Rome was founded by Peter and Paul. Well, you know what? When these Jews came back to Rome, um, that's when the church got going. Peter and Paul didn't get there until much, much later. And in fact, uh, St. Irenaeus in his wonderful work called Against the Heresies, uh, Against the False Teachings that Were Out There, and he wrote this in 180 AD. Yeah, there were lots of false teachings back then too that the church had to deal with. He, he does talk about the church at Rome being founded by the great apostles, the most glorious apostles, Peter and Paul. But he doesn't, he, he doesn't really mean that they started the church there, but they, did, they were, of course, both martyred in Rome around the year 64 AD or so during the persecutions under the wicked Emperor Nero. So their blood certainly was a seed for the growth of the church, and they both died there. They're so crucial to the church in Rome. But the church actually got going uh, with Jewish Christians who believed that Jesus was the Messiah. In fact, a later church writer, Ambrosiaster, once said that, yeah, the church did have its origins in the synagogue. But soon enough, Gentiles got in the mix as well. And that led to some issues, some problems in the church. And really, this is what Paul is writing about. It's a big bulk of the letter, the relationship between Jew and Gentile in the church. What is God's plan for Israel in salvation history going forward? We're going to talk about that and much, much more in the next episode as we actually finish our introduction to Romans, dive into the text. So if you want, you can start reading this on your own. Start reading St. Paul's letter to the Romans. You can read one chapter at a time, maybe a few verses at a time. Get your feet wet and we'll jump into this bottomless pool, this infinity pool, if you will, of incredible truth about God, the gospel, and Jesus Christ. It's St. Paul's letter to the Romans. It's the faith explained on Relevant Radio. I'm your host, Cale Clark. But hey, don't go away. We've still got our Faith Explained Q&A session coming up right now. All right, as we open up our Faith Explained Q&A mailbag today, I want to remind you that you can email the program. The address is faith at relevantradio.com, F-A-I-T-H at relevantradio.com via email, or you can try to get your question to me on the Twitter slash X app. My handle is at Kale Clark, C-A-L-E Clark with an E. And this question comes to me via email. It's from Maria, who's writing from Sacramento, California. She's listening to Relevant Radio on the radio, the old-fashioned way, 1620 AM. And this is what she says. She says, hi, Kale. I'm a grieving mother 
and I have joined a few support groups and noticed that the only relief I've seen with these women has been when they met with a medium to be in contact with the souls of their loved ones. My understanding is that the church forbids this, and I understand that mediums can be a portal for the demons to utilize and terrorize us on earth. At the same time, many of these stories from these other grieving moms have been very comforting to these women, and they claim that this is spot on the mediums and the information they provide. What are your thoughts on this, please? Please pray for me. I lost my 10-year-old special needs son, and I am in such agony each and every day. Oh, Maria, thank you very much for your email. And my heart just breaks for you, and I'm sure all our listeners uh, feel the same way. Uh, to lose your 10-year-old son who had special needs, uh, we will certainly pray for you. I'm going to ask everybody listening right now to please pray for Maria in Sacramento as she grieves the loss of her son. And, and you can certainly see uh, why some of these other grieving parents would, would go to uh, consult a medium, would want to do such a thing, because they're just desperate for any kind of connection uh, with their loved one who has passed away. And, and, and you're right, Maria, the, the church does, does forbid uh, this practice. It, it is very, very spiritually dangerous, and, and we need to understand exactly why that is. So let's talk about it uh, for just a moment. You need to understand that the Bible does talk about this practice, especially in the Old Testament. Uh, it was very common for people to try to consult uh, mediums, uh, practitioners of the occult, um, spiritists of all sorts. And you can read about this in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 27. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 10 to 13 is another good place to go uh, to consult on this. But the catechism, the catechism as well, has something to say about this. Here's what it says. It says, God can reveal the future to his prophets or to other saints. Still, a sound Christian attitude consists in putting oneself confidently into the hands of providence for whatever concerns the future and giving up all unhealthy curiosity about it. Okay, so very often in the Old Testament uh, period, and, and even in, in our own day, the reason why people would want to consult uh, these spiritual gurus is because they want somehow a prediction about the future, <laughs> what, which stock to invest in, or you know what, what disaster is going to befall us. I need to prepare for this. Sometimes people want to consult the dead. Now, this is a, an evil spiritual practice that is condemned. It's called necromancy, and we'll, we'll talk about this in just a moment. In fact, some people think our, our Catholic practice of intercession of the saints is a form of necromancy. That is not the case. So really what this is, is dabbling in the occult demonology. Uh, many will try to uh, consult spirits of the dead, Ouija boards, all this sort of stuff to try to get in touch. And I would say this also would include things like the horoscope. Um, uh, astrology, that, that sort of thing, it, seeking omens, it's all kind of of a piece. And, and really what's what's in play here, it's a desire to to seek control. It's a desire to seek control, as well as wanting to be in touch with 
uh, those who have passed on. But it's very, very spiritually dangerous. And in fact, um, what, what I want to I want to touch on why why this is not necromancy. This this idea of trying to consult the dead. That's not the same thing as our Catholic doctrine of the intercession of the saints. And in fact, uh, my friend Jimmy Aiken, Catholic apologist, uh, wrote a book called uh, A Daily Defense. It's kind of a, uh, an apologetic uh, tidbit for every single day. And on one of those days, it, it talks about uh, this, this question, our Catholic practice of asking dead saints for their intercession is wrong. Some people say this, the Bible forbids it because it's necromancy. Well, first of all, I would say these saints are not dead. They're more alive than you and I are because they're with God in heaven. They're gloriously alive. And they care about us. They're praying for us. But it's not necromancy. And as uh, Aiken explained, necromancy, he says, is an attempt to gain information by conjuring the dead. Now, this actual word necromancy comes from a couple of Greek words. Uh, Nekros, which means a dead person, and mantea which means divination or, or an oracle. You're seeking an oracle. Now, again, this is very, very common in ancient times, but even in the Old Testament, God forbade it. Uh, that passage I mentioned earlier from Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 10 to 11, it says, There shall not be found among you a medium, a wizard, or a necromancer. So when you look at the Hebrew way of explaining this as well, when it talks about mediums in the Old Testament, it, it, the word sho'elob, which means a spirit inquirer. It kind of really um, brings that point home. So it's all about trying to get information. That, that's that, Can you help me predict the future? What is going to happen next? Now, it is true that God does send his people prophets, and those prophets do foretell the future, especially what might happen if people don't repent. There's no question there's this history of prophecy. But that those are the ones we have to pay attention to not these occult uh, mediums, uh, necromancers, uh, who are not aligned with God. That's a totally different ballgame from the prophets who are doing God's will, speaking the very words of God. So one paragraph in uh, the catechism to, to focus in on is paragraph 2116, and that talks about how all of this stuff is forbidden by the church. Now, intercession of the saints is much, much different because we're not asking the saints to tell us the future, what the winning lottery numbers might be, that sort of thing. What we're doing is we're asking for their prayers. We're asking for them to intercede for us. Um, pray for me, just like you might ask a friend to pray for you. And so that's, that's a very, very good practice, and we should um, enter into it very often. As my friend Patrick Madrid likes to say, hey, any friend of God's is a friend of mine. He wrote a book about it <laughs> with that title. And this is how we have to think about the saints. They're our partners. Uh, they're trying to, to get us to where they are with God in heaven. So it's a totally different ballgame from what uh, practitioners of the occult try to do. And if you have been involved in that, uh, the best thing to do is go to your priest, mention that in confession. And if Things have gotten really out of hand. He might recommend a further course of action. But uh, we have to leave the future with God. We have to entrust the souls of our loved ones, the dearly departed, into his hands and his care as well. And if they're in purgatory, we can certainly pray uh, that they be that they would let go and let God and allow him to, to cleanse them uh, so that they can move on 
into his presence, the fullness of his presence in heaven. I'm Cale Clark. Join me in the next episode of Faith Explained tomorrow and later today on The Cale Clark Show, 5 p.m. Central, only on Relevant Radio. Take care.